Well, hello and welcome to a podcast from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. And this particular podcast is on the subject of neuromuscular blockade and patient safety. And it's a great pleasure to welcome from Nine Wells Hospital in Dundee, a consultant anaesthetist, Grant Rodney. Grant, hello. Hello, good morning, Will. Thank you for having me. Uh, which reminds me that I should introduce myself as well. My name is Will Herrick-Griffiths. I am Professor of Practice of Anaesthesia at Imperial College London and currently Vice President of the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Let's plough straight into neuromuscular blockade and patient safety, Grant. To my mind, there is no aspect of patient monitoring in anaesthesia where there is a greater gap between recommendation and reality as in neuromuscular blockade. Can you talk me through what the current recommendations are about monitoring neuromuscular function during general anaesthesia? So the Association of Anaesthetists um, Standards of Monitoring Guidance version 5 from 2015 um, altered the recommendations from availability of a peripheral nerve stimulator in an operating suite to requiring its use when a neuromuscular blocking drug is used. Um, it talked about using a peripheral nerve stimulator um, and urged departments to move towards quantitative monitoring devices um, because there's clearly a difference between a standard nerve stimulator relying on touch or feel to determine presence or absence of fade on a train of four delivery and a quantitative monitor. So the recommendation is is to monitor patients. But as you say, Will, I think there's a gap between the application of those uh, that monitoring uh, and the reality in practice for a variety of reasons. So very clearly, the Association of Anesthetists, the authoritative body on monitoring recommendations, says you should use a nerve stimulator to assess neuromuscular function. And yet, Grant, you and I both actually give anaesthetics for a living, uh, and I see very few of my colleague consultants and very few even of my trainees use a nerve stimulator routinely when they're giving neuromuscular blockade. Why do you think that is? So that's a fascinating um, question, Will. So I think for the last two or three decades, um, research and expert opinion and editorial calls have been for universal monitoring and yet it's not applied. So we, we know that overall um, the overarching incidence of residual neuromuscular block is, is around about 30%. There's a range clearly. Um, and yet on, on surveys of anaesthetists, um, most um, tend to rate that incidence much lower and, and in fact um, don't really see it in practice. Another interesting online showed that um, knowledge levels in relation to nine basic questions around neuromuscular blockade were around 50% and yet confidence levels were high. Um, I think there's also an issue around availability of equipment. Um, clearly it, it, it costs and then the training around its use in order to ensure um, best practice. Um, but but it's a little baffling um, as as to why um, the, around about 50% of cases in the NAP6 um, survey of practice show intubation is is takes place, and therefore you would presume the majority of those, nearly 50% of our patients, require a neuromuscular blocking drug. Um, 
I think also another interesting factor is the perception that the intermediate duration drugs, which came along around about the time we were starting out, I'm guessing well in the 90s, and we thought we'd fixed the problem of pancuronium and curare, um, and they're short duration drugs and there's not an issue. Um, I think we also have the fascinating um, uh, drug in terms of reversal now with Sagamidex, which has been in use since 2008. And undoubtedly, there's a feeling of, well, if you have Sagamidex, why bother with the monitor sort of thing? Because it's it's such a great reversal drug. So I think it's a whole combination of things. And we're not necessarily seeing the problems in recovery related to this. And we're not necessarily seeing the later problems in relation to further down the line, post-operative pulmonary complications, perhaps linked to residual paralysis. We'll, we'll come back to that later. but. I talked about a, a gap between recommendation and reality in monitoring. I think I also identify a significant gap in knowledge. So I talking about neuromuscular blockade is one of my pet uh, topics when I'm talking to a trainee. And if I ask 10 trainees or indeed 10 consultants why you get fade on tetanus or train of four, I'd be really pleased if one of them got the answer correct, and just in case you're wondering whether I know where the answer is correct, that it relates very strongly to the action of neuromuscular blockers on prejunctional acetylcholine receptors. Is part of it the fact that we're not teaching people the importance of this and that we as a speciality now have consigned neuromuscular blockade into something that was really interesting in the 80s and 90s and is no longer fully relevant today? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting comment, um, and and uh, w without um, belittling anyone in any way, I I, I do think there's um, there's an issue around uh, there's a there's a gap in in knowledge. Um, it's the type of um, issue that's addressed obviously during at at um, in training times and at the primary level. Um, my own personal experience in my hospital is, and I, and I would urge colleagues around the country, is to lay your hands on a quantitative neuromuscular monitor, do your normal practice and, and apply it to your patients, um, looking at train of four and post-tetanic counts. And, and it is fascinating both in terms of, of what it reveals um, compared with our clinical judgment, but also it really does focus, as you say, Will, that interaction with trainees and the focus on that topic and in particular how massively variable the response and in, and, and, uh, in relation to drug administration there is. So we learn about this pharmacokinetic variation of, of many fold, um, particularly around uh, the, the, the primary understanding of pharmacology. Uh, and then, and, and yet we we base our drug dosages by recommendation or rote or time, and and nothing reveals the folly of doing so better than actually placing the device on. So I'm not sure I've answered your question, but I do think there's a knowledge gap indeed. Yeah. Now you just raised a really interesting point that there's quite substantial between patient variation in responses to neuromuscular blockade. I get the clinical impression that's more with rocuronium than with atracurium. Those are the two most popularly used ones. And that is one of the factors which allows you to argue that uh, you should be using neuromuscular uh, monitoring. Now, um, 
I listened yesterday to a fantastic webinar, recorded webinar on the Association of Anaesthetists website, one that you organized and spoke in. And I would encourage anybody to go to that website and listen to that webinar. And what I want you to do now is, is talk through the sort of monitors. Now, a point that was very clearly made in that is that we should be using quantitative monitors rather than qualitative monitors. So here's a question for you. If I have a patient there's a mon who has had a neuromuscular blocker some time ago, who has a qualitative monitor on them, I see and feel no fade on trade of four, no fade on tetanus, and no post-tetanic potentiation. Can I be confident that their neuromuscular function has recovered sufficiently to allow them to be safe in the post-anesthesia care unit? The short answer is no, Will. So what what we do know there's clear evidence from British studies that no matter the experience of the assessing anaesthetist that uh, detecting uh, either seeing fade of the fourth to the first twitch on a train of four or feeling that um, is, is impossible um, to differentiate once the train of four ratio recovers to 0.4. In other words, um, using a qualitative device and claiming no fade or the fourth to the first twitch and therefore safe recovery and reversal and wake up. Um, we do not know whether the train of four ratio is 0.4, has reached 0.4 or has recovered to unity or is somewhere in between. Now clearly there's um, um, the patient who's received a small dose of a neuromuscular blocking drug and has had hours of surgery. Um, is is highly likely to have an absence of fade associated with a high ratio of full recovery. Um, but anything up to the sort of two to three hours, I'd, I'd caution to be very wary. Um, anywhere between, um, I'd say, two to three hours after the administration, either of a single intubating dose or certainly a, the sort of large dose seen um, increasingly sometimes with rocuronium as a, as a succinylcholine replacement. Um, but but the, the bottom line is there's a a bridging of the gap which which can only be distinguished by using a quantitative neuromuscular monitor. Now, uh, the very good association webinar outlines the different types of monitor. You, I'm going to force you to talk briefly about AMG, uh, KMG, uh, EMG, and very often we're given a black box by the ODP that's been purchased by the consultant in charge of equipment and it doesn't say what sort it is and you stick it on the arm and it says 75%. What are these devices? Which one should I be looking for? And once you've chosen one of those, what are the pitfalls in its use? So you can only choose one of the three. Which would you choose? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So MMG, mechanomography, is the gold standard research product. Um, it's not available for clinical use. If you are lucky enough to have a quantum device in your hospital, it'll almost certainly in 2020 be an acceleromography device. Newton's law, force equals mass times acceleration. The thumb movement, that force of acceleration is translated and, and displayed as a train of four count and ratio. Um, so that's the most likely to be available. Um, this is a fascinating area of growth as we become more interested in these devices and so do manufacturers and we, we need to 
plug them to manufacturers and they are their ears are pricking up as well with, with increasing interest. EMG is uh, electromography measuring muscle action potential is rated by the experts as probably moving forward will be the gold standard. This is um, this allows, you know, the arms by the side arms tucked surgery we increasingly are exposed to for robotic surgery, major laparoscopic, the morbidly obese, where unfortunately acceleromography, anything that interferes with the thumb movement will give inaccurate readings. Um, so AMG and EMG are probably the two devices out there. And my advice is if you happen to have an AMG is, is use it, get familiar with it, um, ensure that the thumb is free to move it if it is an acceleromography device and there are freestanding products as well as increasingly integrated devices into be it your Philips or GE or Draeger monitoring equipment. Um, take two or three readings, ensure the thumb can move freely and be aware of a, a strange phenomenon which is a reverse fade in AMG. So you start as a baseline with a higher than 100% ratio. So my advice is to is to try and get the recovery ratio as close to 100 as you can. And, and then there's also something in relation to avoiding overdose of neuromuscular blocking drugs to allow you to be in a safe, recoverable position, which remains the case for most of us in today's world that neostigmine rather than sagamidex due to cost will be the reversal drug most likely to be used. So G and EMG, um, and, and there's undoubtedly some work uh, involved around making these monitors more user-friendly um, and easier to use. And, and there's an element of, of learning and practice involved, no question. Now, one of the questions I really have to ask you is the sale of all these monitors and the use of all these monitors is premised to a large extent on the fact that if you go into the post-anesthetic care unit recovery room with residual neuromuscular blockade, it presents a risk. Grant, I've been giving anesthetics for 38 years. I haven't seen people dying like flies in the recovery room because of neuromuscular blockade, and yet you're telling me up to 30%. Is that up to 30% have some identifiable residual neuromuscular blockade, or 30% of people have an extent that will actually put them at risk? Is there actually a problem? Can you prove to me that the way we currently do things presents a threat to these patients? So the, the incidence of 30%, um, uh, the, the way I best view this is as, as an iceberg effect. So there's, there's a big base of that iceberg that we don't see. And it's absolutely clear from recovery studies that there's a delayed, um, if the recovery hasn't been 2.9, um, there, there's a delay in recovery. There is a, a generalized weakness and slowness to recover, which is by the PACU nurse attributed to the anesthesia, isn't it? Um, and I think when we don't measure it, it's, there's often a component of residual paralysis. Um, also some work around um, post in recovery related hypoxic events, you know, hypoxia, airway obstruction, the need to reintubate. And the incidence of that certainly is lower than 30%. We're not seeing that all the time. Um, that's of the order of 1%. And then further down the line, the post-operative pulmonary complications, the need for reintubation or critical care. We're not we're not actually seeing those things. So what we're needing to do, I think, is to is is to measure it. Um, 
view it, ob um, ensure it doesn't happen for all patients, and then where it really does matter for the high-risk patients we have, um, the elderly, the major surgery, the patients who become cold afterwards, the body cavity surgery, the morbidly obese, um, that we we apply it in in to optimize outcomes from those patients. Um, but there's plenty of literature evidence for these complications. Um, and another one being, of course, the the NAP5 findings, um, where you know a quarter of cases happened in the recovery area, essentially inadequate recovery or reversal of neuromuscular block effect while our short-acting anesthetic drugs are wearing off. So um, a higher incidence of awareness under general anesthesia linked to the dynamic phases of, of anesthesia, intubation and extubation. Okay, um, Grant. So I think you justified the use of a quantitative monitor and I think you've identified the potential risk to patients. But I don't have to worry because I use rocuronium and then I give 200 milligrams of Sugamidex and I know that that's just going to reverse the patient. So why do I need to monitor? Because I can just give Sugamidex at the end and everything's hunky-dory. It's a wonderful drug. Is that a sustainable point of view? Sure. So um, rocuronium, as, as you said earlier, Will, as, as with all the drugs, has a very variable duration. And I think there probably is something around the, the, the vari particular variability with rocuronium. I think Another um, another mistake sometimes is the neuromusc the non-depolarizers should be based on ideal body weight, not actual. So very often we give uh, a big overdose. Um, interestingly, there are studies that show that um, a, a Japanese one where they don't monitor much, but they widely use Sugamidex, that an incidence of residual paralysis of up to 10%. And another very interesting one with elderly patients having major surgery, comparing neostigmine with Sagamidex recovery. Again, clearly Sagamidex uh, produces fewer patients than neostigmine with residual paralysis. But again, in that unmonitored group, um, an incident of up to 10%, indeed 3% having trainerfor ratios under 0.7, which was this sort of old money target. So I think every every expert opinion would say that uh, Sagamidex is part of an overall strategy. It's a great reversal drug, but the monitor dictates the dose of Sagamidex to reverse and then allows the measurement of that final outcome to recover to a trainer for ratio of 0.9. And there will be some patients, even with Sagamidex, who, um, who will struggle to reach that if you blindly dose on reversal so no question that neuromuscular monitoring should still be used, even if um, this wonderful drug Sagamidex is used. And of course, um, there are complications and side effects from any drug. Anaphylaxis looks in Japan to be one of the biggest causes is the rocuronium Sagamidex um, combination. Um, and like any drugs, drug, there are consequences. So minimizing and giving the correct dose and ensuring recovery makes sense, even with Sagamidex. Now, in the UK, Sigamidex is a relatively expensive drug relative to neostigmine, which is cheap as chips. Um, when I was a lad, uh, you could safely give neostigmine to reverse the effects of atricurium, or rocur then rocuronium, when you just had one or two twitches of the train of four. 
Whereas I saw on the guidance that was provided in the association webinar, this has now been ramped up to three or four. Has neuromuscular physiology changed or were we doing it wrong then? And what should you do with, with you when you use neostigmine to reverse non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockade? So I use neostigmine um, a lot uh, or with spontaneous recovery and a quantitative monitor. The thing about neostigmine is um, clearly it's a, it's, it's a drug with, with issues, but it does require a high level of recovery. Um, and many would add a return to train of four count of four if you possibly can. So it's all about minimizing your relaxant dose where paralysis isn't required for surgery. Um, interestingly enough, uh, even at four twitches, the mean time to a train of four ratio of 0.9 um, is around about 10 minutes. But one of the big issues with neostigmine is, is the range of responses, which can only be revealed with a quantitative monitor. So reversing at a count of four, the mean time is 10 minutes, but it can take you know, up to 15 or 20 minutes. And I, I see that repeatedly in my own practice. Then I think we the, the dosage of neostigmine is often an underdose. So if there's fade on a train of four, or certainly if you're reversing from a train of four count of three or four, you need 50 mics per kilo. Now that's a one vial is is um, is the equivalent for a 50 kilo person, and we don't have too many 50 kilo adults. So very often 50 mics per kilo will, will equate to more than one vial of neostigmine. So we need to allow that recovery as much as we can, then give the correct dose of neostigmine, and then allow enough time to wait. Now one of the one of the concerns is we reverse at the end, then we wait, then we've got a delay before we pull the tube out and we've got pressure of throughput. So the issue is just to get in early, allow that recovery to happen, give the reversal with neostigmine early and, and monitor for certainty with a quantitative device to get to 0.9. But if you don't have one, then give the correct dose to as high a level of recovery as you can and wait long enough, I would say up to 10, 10 minutes minimum, but up to 15 to 20 minutes even, depending on the presence of fade or otherwise on your train of four measurement. Now, I'm going to ask you, uh, just as we come towards the end of this podcast, to, to look deeply into your crystal ball. Do you think there will be further significant developments in neuromuscular blocking drugs? Or do you think we've seen our last new drug that where now we've got rocuronium and atricurium, there's no need to create any more neuromuscular blocking drugs? That's a good question. Um, will the, um, <clears throat> there are, there is some work out there around chelating agents for the benzylisoquinolone. So, you know, as, as you said earlier, well, I think atricurium, cisatricurium remain popular in the UK. Um, uh, and and perhaps, although they can have a long duration, um, perhaps are more predictable than, than rocuronium. That's a, a little uncertain. Um, I'm not sure it takes a lot to develop new drugs for us. I think for looking forward to the next few years, what we will have is increasing availability of quantitative monitors, a greater range of choice, hopefully with manufacturers producing us devices that are simple to use, affordable, free of prolonged calibration and free of funny readings that that I, I get referred to by some colleagues sometimes and as you mentioned earlier. So I think more focus on that and then also around 
the availability of Sigamadex, um, perhaps as it comes off, off patent and becomes more widely available. But I think it's really important to put it in context of a whole overarching strategy around planning, uh, avoiding excessive paralysis when it's not needed, even if you do have um, Sigamadex. So with regards to new drugs, I'm, I'm not sure that we're going to get much closer to any more ideal agent that doesn't have display that same variability and we can manage around that perfectly well with adequate monitoring and a strategy and the reversal agents that we have. Now um, in spite of uh, my younger colleagues saying that neuromuscular blockade will soon become a thing of the past as everybody starts giving TIVA with large doses of remifentanil and you don't need it I think neuromuscular blockade is here to stay, and I would think it will continue to play an important part of our clinical practice. So we're going to wrap up this podcast now, Grant, and I'm going to give you a one-minute chance to say what you would see as best practice in the monitoring and reversal of neuromuscular blockade in contemporary best practice. Go. So, well, I think that and the, there's no question that a quantitative neuromuscular monitor is needed. Um, I think uh, that should be applied whenever we use a neuromuscular blocking drug, um, along with the routine monitors, ECG blood pressure at the start of the anesthetic. Once the patient's anesthetized, it can be activated. Some, some of these devices claim to need calibration. Uh, others are calibration free. But just see the thumb twitching, that gives us information that the device is king. Then give the neuromuscular blocking agent at the appropriate time, and you will immediately start to, to, to see the variability in practice in terms of the onset of the drugs and their recovery. Then I think we need to think and plan and work with our surgical colleagues. So we need to keep patients still, but we need to paralyze very few. Body cavity surgery, yes. So if we don't need to paralyze people, let's not do that. And you mentioned TIVA and TIVA users like myself and others tend to under paralyze, if you like. Um, so I think we then need to um, ensure paralysis. So for complicated, difficult body cavity surgery, using an appropriate monitor, we can flex deeper when our colleague, surgical colleagues need that. And if we don't need that, we can target moderate levels of surgical block. That then puts us in a position at the end of surgery to know how deeply paralyzed the patient is, give an appropriate dose of the correct drug. So neostigmine with higher levels of recovery, and if you're reversing from deep, unquestionably Sigamidex will be needed. Then we have a quantitative device that will get us to a train of four ratio of 0.9 at the end as we tail things down, but do not awaken the patient until we absolutely have hit that target and above. And bear in mind that awakening and clinical measurement of head lift, strength of muscle use and so on is, is, is of no value at all in detecting residual paralysis. So plan, paralyze when you need to, not without, monitor with a quantitative device. And I think actually I have no evidence at all, but I think incorporating this in our practice along with the increasing use of hypnosis processed EEG monitoring will allow us to refine and bespoke deliver anesthesia to our patients and enhance and enhance their care moving forwards. 
Grant, thank you very, very much indeed. I have really, really enjoyed this. I, I must admit, I am a bit of a neuromuscular blockade fetishist. I, in fact, married neuromuscular blockade. My father-in-law was Professor Stanley Feldman, who was one of the leading twitchers of his generation in the 70s and 80s. And I have retained that fascination for it. It has been a brilliant conversation. I think you've put forward some really clear steps to support patient safety in the use of these drugs. Uh, that it, this, these steps are evidenced and the capacity to monitor neuromuscular blockade is available. It's not expensive and we should be using it. The use of a nerve stimulator should be considered mandatory. And I know that you will agree with me that I think very shortly the use of a quantitative stimulator will become mandatory in the UK in the next year or two. Uh, I'd like to thank you very much indeed, Grant, for joining us from Nine Wells Hospital in Dundee. I'd like to thank those of you who've been listening intently to us talking about neuromuscular blockade. Uh, and I hope that the rest of your day is as good as it has been so far. Uh, thanks, Grant. Thanks all. And we'll hopefully welcome you again at another Royal College of Anesthetists podcast. Thank you for listening to this RCOA podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts as well as videos, e-learning, webinars and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.